Aaron Copland, Appalachians, 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 Fucking hell. I'll open the show with this bit. <laughs> Recorded live at Machine Sound London, this is the Band Before the Band Before podcast, and I am your host, Chaz Langston. And this is the first ever episode, so welcome. And I know what you're thinking. Who the fuck is this guy? Well, I'll tell you, if you let me. Uh, well, I've told you. Now, since this is our first ever episode, you're going to have no idea how this really works. Which is fine, because I've got no idea how this really works. So, we're going in this together. Let me try and explain anyway. So this is the podcast in which we take our guests way back to the very beginning, and we go through their musical journey with them, up until the point until they actually become successful. We talk to them about their first ever public performances and early gigs, We go back to the very early days of their songwriting and go through old song titles and lyrics. We go through their band history with them, finding out about old band names, band members, the makeups, the breakups, the first gigs, the worst gigs, the mistakes and the heartbreaks, everything in between that led to them becoming the fully-fledged rock stars that they are today. I hope that all makes sense. Anyway, let's talk about our guest. So our guest today is not only an amazing songwriter and producer, but he's also the front man of Does It Offend You Yeah. He's worked with the likes of Biffy Clyro, The Prodigy, Major Lazer and Dylan Francis. And that's just to name a few. Obviously he's worked with more than four people. That would be ridiculous, ridiculous thing to say. We talked to him about what it was like growing up in and around the music industry, with his father being an award-winning music production pioneer. We go into the depths of what it's like dealing with both imposter syndrome and bipolar. We talk about his early days where he was making chin-stroking techno. His words, not mine. We talk about old band rehearsals in which not a single member of the band owns an instrument. The beauty of 80s action TV theme tunes. And also a world exclusive of how Ricky Gervais gave him the band name. Kind of. I'm a... Well, you'll, you'll see what I mean once you hear it. So if you're listening to this while you're at work, go and make yourself a tea or coffee and get yourself comfortable. If you're listening to this on the way to work, I hope the person next to you doesn't stink a B.O. and the person opposite you hasn't been looking at you weirdly the entire journey. If you're listening to this while you're in the gym, take a look in the mirror, flex those pecs, give them a little kiss, and remember, Chazzy loves you. However you're listening to this, it's time for the Band Before the Band Before podcast with our guest, Does It Offend You Yes, James Russian. How's that? Testing, testing. Yeah, no delay. No delay. Yeah. Fucking hell, mate. Fuck me. You all right, mate? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? <laughs> you all right? Yeah, man. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm not talking short term. I'm talking like mentally long term. Are you all right? <laughs> oh, I'm sound, mate. I'm sound. Question one. Are you all right? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is going to be difficult because I know you so well. And, and, and do you know what I mean? It's going to be, I, like, I got to keep remembering that other people are going to hear this. So I can't be like, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> we can. I can just bleep it out. I'll be, I'll be cancelled in a second. <laughs> if I was like, if I had the profile that I, that I had, you know, 15 years ago now, that'd be it. They're cancelled. 
within one gig. You wouldn't have even got started, mate. <laughs> it would have been it. Enemy would have been like, yeah, it does it if any are cancelled. <laughs> that does it offend you? Yes, actually, it does. Quite a lot. Cancel. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then, mate. Uh, let's set the scene. Tell us about your birthplace, your hometown. Uh, I was born in Reading, Royal Barks Hospital, um, in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, I was born in you know, Royal Barks Hospital, Reading. Um, and then I was kind of brought up for the first five years. We lived in a in a little sleepy village, Streetly, uh, which was great. The first sort of five years of my life was great. I was born into a wealthy family and you know, my dad was doing really well with his, his career and had a nice big house and you know, 40 acres of land and a swimming pool. And like, everything was like. I remember even being at that age, I, I remember thinking like, wow, you know, I've sort of landed on my feet <laughs> with, this, with this one. Um, little did I know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, I sort of grew up there. Like, and it's really like green and, and there's loads of woodland and things like that. So it was really like a Lord of the Rings type of upbringing. Right. Um, and yeah, I lived there till I was about five or six. And then the shit at the fan. Um, my dad was bipolar, which undiagnosed. And uh, he, him and my mum went through a horrific divorce. And just ripped, it ripped everything to sort of shreds. And he basically went mad. Um, and like, you, you know, because like bipolar, you got the up and then you got the down. And those ups and downs can, they vary for everyone. Some people have them daily. You know, one day they're hyper, the next day they, they can't get out of bed, things like that. And then you have people that they're hyper for a week and then they, they hit, hit the floor. And then you have what my dad had, which was he was hyper for years. <laughs> he was hyper for like 10, 15 years. He was on and up. And uh, and then I think the divorce like triggered the other side. And he basically went down real quick. Was he aware of it before he hit the down? Not really. I mean, none of us really knew. I mean, it's weird to being that age and watching because, you know, your your parents are a kind of God when you're that young yeah and you know watching this guy who was like god to me he was everything just dissolve you know into not even half the guy he was you know it was it was a bit of a trip it's one of those things where it's like you discover your parents aren't or your dad isn't a god when you're around 16 17 you know and he but for me it was way way earlier it was like, oh, shit, this, this guy can't hold it together type of thing. Yeah, and I mean, he just he just lost everything, you know? I mean, this is the thing. Bipolar and money do not mix. They are two things that just don't go together. They're a bad combination. Um, so anyway, yeah, he was just, he was done, you know? By the time I was about 10, 11, he was completely on the floor. Wow. Had lost everything. And he'd done some really bad business deals to try and sort of keep the studio afloat. And he sold his royalties and done all sorts of crazy stuff. And yeah, he was pretty much left with nothing at the end of it. Fuck. 
And um, so we lived in, we got another house in Streetly, like a little, a little place. Um, I mean, there's lots of bits in between. I went to live with my mum for a while and this and that. Uh, but we ended up at this house in Streetly, just down the road from the studio. And he, um, again, he couldn't get out of bed. He got this girlfriend that was like 17, I think, when he started. <laughs> he was like 40, right? And she was like 17. I mean, just worlds apart, right? But, you know, it's the old man. So he's like, yeah, he started seeing her and it all just, booze was involved and partying and and uh, it, it all just got crazy. Um, and then she left and then we moved to Seattle for, it was about nine months, I think, something like that. Oh, what age were you when you moved to Seattle? Um, see, I'm going to age myself now if I say this. I was one in 93 <laughs> <laughs> no i think it was what was it it was 92 oh wow it was 92 so yeah like literally as it was happening so you were out in seattle when seattle was getting on the map yeah as it was all happening and i got to meet all those guys and, um all of them yeah pretty much um i pretty much got to meet all of them soundgarden Varna, pearl jam tad i think i met mud honey posies uh, fastbacks all, all the Seattle bands, because basically, because the old man, because he came up through the punk era, you know, so he produced a lot of the punk stuff, and that opened a lot of doors when we got there. Yeah, just his name. We were invited to a party, a sub pop, pretty much straight away. So yeah, we. I just got to meet all those, all the, and I was really into it as well. So it was like it was pretty cool to sort of hang out with those guys. And I mean, I didn't hang out. It's not like we went partying together. I was you know, a kid, but just to sort of be around them. And and at the time they were just, they weren't as big as they are. Like you say Kurt Cobain or Nirvana now, and it's like, it's like something else, you know, it's yeah. like this mystical thing. But at the time they were just a kind of cool big band. That's really all it, all they were like, they were like Muse. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you know what I mean? It was like they were just a big act at that point. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't this legendary status. Smells Like Teen Spirit was just a really good tune at, at the time. Yeah. You didn't know that it was going to go on, that no one was going to top it for fucking 30 odd years, whatever it's, you know. Um. So, yeah, it was cool. It was It was a cool thing that happened. And my dad, again, he was... He wasn't on form, you know, Um, and he did produce, he mixed, I think, he mixed a a record for a band called Flop, who were good, but I think the horse had bolted by the time they sort of showed up, do you know what I mean? Like, it all happened, so the timing was off, Uh, so it didn't work out, but they were, yeah, they were were a good band, Uh, but again, he just, he wasn't on form, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, with it completely, so yeah. So we moved back. Uh, I think we were out there for nine months or so. Then we moved back. Back to Reading. No, we moved to Wokingham. And my dad started, he started working with like pub bands. Like I think his, and I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of them are really, you know, they were good. There was one called Blue Whale that was, were a great band. Um, but I think he lost his, his uh, confidence, you know. Like he never did a big act after, after everything he got offered stuff you know he got offered arctic monkeys but turned it down and i remember i said to him like why the fuck did you turn down arctic monkeys and he was like well what 
what have I got to offer? They're already a huge act. Like, what am I going to bring to the table? And it's like, you, you stickhead. You know, you're, you're going to bring you. Yeah, he completely lost track that they were after him for him. Yeah, yeah, he just lost his mojo and never really got it back. Yeah. You know. And then we started up this club in Newbury. Uh, and this was around as like the big dance explosion was happening in the UK, kind of like mid to late 90s. And that didn't work out. <laughs> it was like Sorry, two years not. of work. And we were open for two weekends. And it was, it was just nuts. It was just fucking, it was nuts. You were open for two weekends? Yeah. It was like two years worth of work. You know, just struggling to get this place open and, and you know, getting funding and doing all of this sort of stuff. And we built this fucking crazy club. And then just two weekends, we were open. And then it, he was always, it was always, everything was right on the edge. You know, it was always last minute, right on the edge. You know, there's never been any sort of like um, smooth sailing. <laughs> there was never any of that. It was just like, you know, just hack, hack away. Just, you know, try and get as much done as quickly as possible. And, and yeah, it just, it didn't work out. You know, he, he'd missed some vital things just to sort of get it open. Right. And, uh, and then, yeah, it all fell apart relatively quickly. Um, so then I moved out of home and I'd started seeing this girl and, she was a, a traveler girl. So she had like a, a, um, you know, a caravan and sort of moved to, she was like, you know, traveler site. I lived on there for a while. Not very long. We, again, we were only together for like six months, something like that. Right. I was too young to have a proper girlfriend, you know? Um, and then I moved to Reading and started doing like techno nights and things. Uh, and that's where I met Dan. Really? We're talking about Dan from Does It Offend You, yeah? Yeah, yeah, the keyboard player. Frankenstein. I like to Coop. Play. Big up Coop. <laughs> Big up Coop. When he's pissed, he looks like Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Why only when he's pissed? When he gets really hammered. <laughs> I've said, I'll never forget, he was really drunk once and we lost him or something. And then we saw him walking towards us and like he was silhouetted. <laughs> <laughs> and it looked like Frankenstein coming towards us. Um but yeah, he's Dan. Dan's one of the nicest guys I've I've ever met. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's, uh, he's an absolute supportive, kind uh, guy, and uh, I'm really lucky to still have him as a friend. You know. Um. So yeah. So then I started doing techno nights and stuff, and and then I tried to do this whole vinyl distribution thing, which didn't work out. And then I went to work for Killer Keller as a sound guy, and then. Does it venue happened after that? Amazing. Yeah. Normally I'd ask people, did they grow up in a musical family or a musical household or anything like that? But obviously your dad's Martin Russian, so I don't need to ask you, did you? What was it like growing up in a musical household? Like <laughs> was it like force fed upon you or did you discover it yourself? What's your earliest memories with regards to uh, music? My earliest memories is I would want to be with, I was really intrigued, I think, with what dad did. Like, I loved the atmosphere of the studio. It's such a shame that it, that, that has gone now, you know, but everything about it, I, I loved. 
like the smell. Studios used to have a smell, right? Which was tape. Yep. You know, this sort of this sort of it smelled like like I can't. It's like licorice, or it's just this dark, deep sort of taste um, or smell, I should say. Uh, there was that mixed with tobacco. Yeah, sweat, sweat, and just it, you know, it was this really cool environment that I used to love hanging out in. And I would sit at the back of the studio. They had like he had like these big leather sofa things, <clears throat> and I would just fall asleep. You know, I was young. I was like three, four, and he just let me fall asleep because he was always working until you know middle of the night type type of thing so they're my real earliest memories is, is sort of falling asleep at the back of the studio and then waking up with dad carrying me down to the house and stuff like that um and yeah i was just i was just intrigued with what it was he did or what like what are they doing you know yeah um, and it was exciting even Ooh. at that age i was i was excited about it yeah, of course. I just remember like the patch bays and stuff. I, I can't remember how old I was, but he showed me how it all worked. And he had like this Lin drum, uh, which was like one of the first like uh, really good drum machines to sort of come out yeah. in that era. Um, and he showed me how to program that. And he showed me how to patch it into the tape machine and do all of this and how to patch in a keyboard and stuff and blah, blah, blah. And he just sort of left me to it. Is this before you picked up like any instruments? You're patching, you're you're working in the patch bay with your dad before you even touch an instrument. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, yeah. That's amazing. It was before. It was all. It all started off with, with programming. Essentially, I, I did a, a cover "Stand by Me" and I sort of worked it all out on on my own. Once he sort of showed me the ropes, I was like, "Oh, okay." So if I want to go to track two on the tape machine, I pull that out and I plug it into there. Okay, and now, okay, right. And I sort of figured it all out. And I remember he came in like, I don't know, an hour or so later and I'd laid down like, oh, it was, it was, it was shit. <laughs> but I'd got this far kind of on my own. I'd sort of figured it out. And I remember him sort of like, wait, you did, you've done this. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, wow, okay. He was obviously in the blood then. How old were you? I must have been about... I mean, this was when he still had the studio, so I was six, maybe. <laughs> Fucking hell. So at six years old, <laughs> six years old, you were able to uh, set up a patch bay, yeah. patch in a drum machine. It sounds impressive, but it's really just technical stuff. You know, it's not, it's not artistry. You know, those things are just... Are I just... don't know, man recreating stand by me at six years old and recording it and patching yourself in is pretty fucking impressive you get kids you know working ipads at that age you know doing faster than i can you know so it's it's i think it's just it was the ipad of the day <laughs> and uh <laughs> fucking big ipad but you know it was the ipad of the day and i just i just you know figured it out pretty quick but yeah, that was like the first sort of musical thing. And then I remember my, my brother had some drums because drums is my first instrument. Is it really? Um, yeah. And um, my brother got some drums for Christmas or birthday. I can't remember. And we had like this garden, uh, outhouse garden thing. And he, he set it all up in there. And, and I'd go in there and watch him practice. And I mean, my brother, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a good drummer. He would like... He was counting right to like when he was learning to play. 
And I, and I was like, why is he doing? I can see him counting in his head, like, you know, well, okay, kick, kicks on one, you know, and the snares on three. And just sort of this clunky, you know, he got a lot better, don't get me wrong. But I remember thinking, like, I, I can play. You just know where it is. Yeah. I, I can, yeah, I can just play. And he wouldn't let me near his drum kit. He was always like, don't touch my fucking drum kit. <laughs> and, uh, and then one day he went out and, you know, I sneaked in and... Rubbed your balls all over it like the dude in Step Brothers. <laughs> Stuck his drumstick <laughs> on my butt. Put back. <laughs> uh, but no, like, yeah, and I just remember I just got on them and and I played. And I didn't have to count. I didn't have to do any of that. I, just, I could just play. You know, I wasn't great, but it didn't take me long to sort of figure it out. And then... Yeah, that was it. That was I was I was a drummer all of a sudden. Um, that's fucking impressive, man. I can't. I still can't believe that your technically your first instrument isn't an instrument. It's learning how to you know use the patch bay and using drum, drum machines. Machine, and, the Linda, yeah, the the first thing. Do you remember picking up a guitar for the first time? Yeah, and it was really out. Of, it was kind of out of necessity. Right. I remember I had a four track. I didn't. I wasn't that interested in guitar or bass really. I was a drummer, but I knew that I had a four track and I was writing songs. Right. And I was like the only one there. So I knew I had to play the guitar. So I sort of picked it up and I didn't learn any chords. I just sort of put my fingers in places until something <laughs> worked. <laughs> I didn't know any chords. I didn't know where to put my fingers, nothing. You know, and but I sort of worked out these these patterns that would you know it would sound pretty good so then that pattern with that pattern would sound pretty good and right and then i just sort of figured it out really and then somebody showed me actual chords and things later on um and then the bass was just learned by ear right you know i still don't know if somebody says to me oh can you play like a c on on the bass i'm like well, which one is <laughs> which one is that? you know i don't i don't know where the notes are well, um, the beauty of uh, just doing it on your own with a four track is you ain't got no one asking you to play a C. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That whole thing is like imperative to how fucking good your sound is and how good you are as a songwriter. Because straight away, it's not that the rules have been thrown out the window. There were never any rules. Yeah. And I mean, that's it's it's really funny. Like I have a massive problem with with thinking that rules are the way to go. You know, and the music that really excites me is when it, it can be anything. You know, it can be anything. It, it doesn't have to be any type of music, but I can hear. It reminds me that there aren't any rules in this. Yep. Um, and and there's like no you you hear there's no fear. I can hear fear in music now really easily. You know, I go that person was scared when they were making it. And then you can hear music where it's like that person doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, totally. Doesn't care. And, and you, you know, you can like it or not like it. It doesn't change how they're going to express themselves. And that's usually the stuff that I get really excited about. The only problem with that type of music is it's either hugely successful or doesn't really do anything. You know, it either changes the course of stuff or no one really likes it. Yeah. As well, somebody once said to me, this is the only good bit of advice this guy ever gave me. I'm not going to say his name, but but anyway. He said, your job is music. You've grown up in music. You've, you see all the subtleties. You see 
what the masses don't. He's like, so something that sounds great to you, it's not simple enough for the mass. You know, it's like, you know, that's uh, neither a good thing or a bad thing. I yeah. Think, it, it is. So that's the thing. I think because they're, they're musically minded to them, it was fucking what they were doing was great. But to the mass audience, it was just a turnoff because it, it wasn't, it wasn't simple enough. So yeah, anyway. Sorry. Ah, that's all right. I forgive you. So, so do we like big influences on you early on like especially like songwriting or weren't there any uh i mean all the grunge stuff obviously i was really i really got into you know that was big a big influence i mean as a as a as a kid kid like peter gabriel i loved peter gabriel and i loved michael jackson and then as i got older you know grunge came along and uh and that was great and then I wasn't into rave at all until I wasn't into dance music until Prodigy really came along. Right. I was into the first two albums and I liked it. And then it was really when Fat of the Land dropped that suddenly it was like, oh shit, dance music can sound like this. You know? And that was a real like, oh, okay. You know, before I was like interested in bands and things like that, blah, blah, blah. And then that record just sent me on a complete 180. I was just like, oh, fuck. I mean, I remember, I still remember hearing um, Smack My Bitch Up for the first time. I mean, talk about music that has no fear in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Smack My Bitch Up. It's <laughs> fucking, it's like, okay. <laughs> and I mean, this, 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 yeah, that just fucking took my head off. And that's really when I started looking into dance music. And I, and I discovered um, Aphex Twin and uh, Chemical Brothers and, you know, like Exit Planet Dust is a fucking great, great dance record. I would say they would, oh, and then obviously, you know, Rage Against the Machine, I, I loved to bits. When OK Computer came out, that took totally. I remember actually my dad, he bumped into somebody. We were in London and he bumped into this woman. We were like walking down the road and can't remember her name, but he was like, you know, hey, Jill or something or. She's like, hello, Martin, oh, blah, blah, and they start talking. And he said, uh, so have you got anything coming up in the pipeline or anything? And she said, oh, we've got this new album. He said, have you heard a Radiohead? He was like, yeah. So they've got this album coming out. She's like, it's fucking amazing. Like, everyone's into it. It was coming out in like a month. Check it out. It's called OK Computer. And then that record dropped. And it was like, again, it was, it was, it was one of those records. It changed everything yeah it, it it had no fear to it there was no doubt in that record there was no second guessing it was just you know it is what it is type of thing um oh and Paul's head's first record as well dummy was crazy um i got a chance to speak to um jeff and i think his name's jeff i hope i'm getting it right <laughs> <laughs> um yes jeff Barrow. Right. Um, I got to speak to him on the phone because the head of the label that was that we were 
thinking about signing to had signed Portishead and we'd had this big discussion about Portishead and like how great that fucking first record is. Um, and then I suddenly got a call from Jeff just sort of vouching for this A&R guy just saying, Hey, he looked after us and he's, he's great and blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow. And then we just started talking about the record about the making a dummy. And, and he was like, I just put compression on everything. <laughs> He's like, I remember like people were coming up to him and being like the production on that record, how you've sort of, you know, done this and done that and the way, the way you sort of do that. And he was like, I had, didn't really know what I was doing. He said, all I knew is that when I stuck compression on stuff, it just sounded better. So I just <laughs> kept doing that. <laughs> and that was, that was it. That was, that was the record. So yeah, that was sort of a warning, I think, as to not really overthink stuff. <laughs> What was the point in your life where you sort of realise that you're a musician? It hasn't happened yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still like, fucking hell. Whew, you're blagging this one. <laughs> Aren't we all, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, yeah, it's the whole imposter syndrome thing, isn't it? No, yeah. I don't think, you know, there's, I'm sure there's some guys out there that think they're bona fide musicians and they're probably awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think most of us, not all of us talk about it, but I think most of us have the imposter syndrome. And yeah, I've never thought myself as a musician, really. I've, I've just kind of blacked it, you know, as best I can. Um, I've never gone, I'm the fucking shit. I've never had that moment. I've got excited about songs. Yeah. But I think, I, I think here's the thing about that is that it's, it's dangerous to, it's dangerous to attach your ego to your musical output um, because everyone has good days and everyone has bad days. You know, even the best of the best have good days and bad days. And I think as soon as you attach your kind of self-worth and your ego to that, you're, you're kind of doomed because most people have more worse days than they have good days. Yeah. So you're just bashing yourself over the heads like every other day. So, yeah, you've got to sort of detach yourself from it. So uh, music is what I do for a living. But I wouldn't necessarily go, oh, I'm a musician. That's as far as I'm willing to sort of put myself. When you were young <laughs> and you first started being really involved in music, like off your own back and like writing and stuff, did you feel like it gave you a purpose? Oh, yeah, 100%. Again, though, is I wouldn't do that now. Like if somebody said to me, you can go back 20 years and, but you won't hold the knowledge that you hold now. I'd go, no, no, no I'm fine. Yeah. Fuck that. Well, I got to go, I got to go through all that again. <laughs> I got, I got to figure that out again. Like, nah, is like, is there a way I can go back with the knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. What, what, what was the question? Um, did it give you a purpose or a sense of purpose? Oh, at least? right. Yeah. No, it did. It did. It was really, I mean, it was really going to festivals, Reading Festival especially, and, you know, watching bands that I liked. And the thing that's great about, or what I think was great about that was everyone's in the same moment. That's what makes a great gig or what makes a great audience is that everyone's in the same moment at precisely the same time. That's why I think mobile phones have 
kind of destroyed a bit of the atmosphere when it comes to gigs because everyone's looking through their phones. They're not in the moment with everyone else. So it's kind of lost something about it. 100%. I, I really feel kind of sorry for the, the younger generation that's come up and not known. Like they have no concept of that moment. Um, there's a great video. I'm not a massive fan of the band The Levelers, mm -hmm. but there's a great video of them doing um, There's Only One Way of Life, their big hit, at Glastonbury, when Glastonbury was still a traveller festival, essentially. Right. There's maybe, I don't know, 50,000, 60,000 people there watching The Levelers play, and they're headlining, and they start um, the one-way song. And, I mean, the chorus of that song is fucking great. Right, it's a really, it's a great chorus, um, and he, they get to the chorus, and you could just tell everyone's right there in the moment singing, you know, the chorus. And, and every time I watch it, I'm like, that, you know, that's that's really what it's about is that moment. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the same in the studio, you know, or as a band. It's when the, everyone's in right there in the moment that great stuff happens. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, like, the, what was it? I think Rage's first album, it was a month. They wrote that whole thing in a fucking month. <laughs> Didn't they get signed like after two shows as well or something ridiculous like that? Which yeah, is not surprising. Really it's not surprising. Imagine walking into that and seeing something, like, uh, seeing Rage for the first time, like with no, when nothing like that ever existed. Yeah, you know well, I actually, I, I, when I worked on the Biffy Cairo record, I got to meet Garth. He um, he produced the first Rage album. Oh, wow. And I said to him, I went, I said, well, well, you know, what's the story? Like, and he said, I was at a bar and this A&R guy came in. He said, oh, hey, look, I've signed this new act. I'm wondering if you fancy, you know, recording them. He said, they're doing a rehearsal tomorrow. Just show up and have a listen and see what you think. And he was like, yeah, sure. And I showed up. And he says, I can't remember what song it was, but I remember I was shaking at the end of it. <laughs> it could be any of that like, album. It could, be, yeah, it could be any of that record. He was like, I was just so blown away. And he said, all I knew, I all I had to do was just record it well. And that's what he did. He said, we recorded it pretty much live, completely live. He said, I just had to capture, I just, all I had to do was capture that. And yeah. I think that is the greatest debut album of all time. Oh uh, yeah, it's definitely up there without a doubt. Um, again, it's one of those ones where I remember, I remember seeing them. I saw them live first at because uh, my we were in Belgium. My dad was mixing a record, I think, and the band that he was mixing were playing this festival. And so we went to this festival, and I just sort of on my own, you know, and wandering around and stuff. And I watched a couple of bands, and I remember looking at the, this band finished. And I looked at the, who was next. It was like Rage Against the Machine. And I was like, cool name, but never heard of them type of thing. <laughs> and they came on and I, lit, I fucking just took, <laughs> I was just like, why the fuck? What is this? Uh, and I went out the next day and got the album because the album was already out. Right. But the thing is that album broke in Europe before it broke anywhere else. So they were, they were big in Belgium, like pretty quick, <laughs> I think. I remember I got back to England and no one had heard of them. And I was like, there's this fucking Belgian band <laughs> <laughs> called Rage Against the Machine. 
<laughs> and I think they're going to be big in like England, man. They're that good, you know. They're, and yeah, obviously, you know, I later found out that they were from LA. <laughs> yeah, that first record just took my head off. Yeah. You know? I remember, I remember when I bought that album and I was listening to it and I heard the dad coming upstairs thinking it was like, you know, that FUD of them coming upstairs, they're angry at you. Yeah. The door come flying open and he was Same just, thing happened to me. He was into it. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. He opened the door yeah, and he was yeah. like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, it's Rage Against the Machine. And he was like, this fuck, could you do me a copy for, for the car? And I was just like, and that um, was it. My old man. He literally went and bought a new stereo system for his car so he could listen to it louder. <laughs> like he had a car with some shitty stereo system. And he went and he bought a subwoofer and he f- fitted it all himself. And, and then uh, we would drive, we would drive. He would like pick me up from my mate's house and I'd hear him coming down the fucking road. <laughs> I'd hear Rage Against the Machine like blasting out this car. And, uh, yeah, I remember I, I really thought that my dad wouldn't be into it. I was yeah. really like, I can finally rebel. And uh, and he f- was bang into it. Yeah, same. I think in a way that album kind of made me and my dad closer. Not that we weren't close or anything, but like he really started embracing a lot more metal. My dad was always like quite a punk sort of rock guy, but he was not into like metal at all. And right. that I think that really changed. And he started like asking me about start. He'd start buying Kerrang!, and, um, which is great because it saved me one pound eighty a week. As far as metal went, but that was it. That's all I really sort of put my toe in the water, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think I was mildly entertained by when Slipknot showed up and they were doing the whole mask. That, well, they're still doing the mask thing, mm-hmm. but you know, we definitely didn't get Limp Biscuit. No, who apparently are back and they are, and he looks weird. It kind of works better yeah, for him but- though, looking weird. One of those things where it's like, do you know when they were around the first time, they were really uncool when the critics would bash them and do all of this. And now it's kind of like they've come back and the critics are all now like, do you know what? We misunderstood <laughs> Limp Biscuit the first time around. I'm like, no, you, nah, you didn't. It's just that musical standards are quite low right now. <laughs> <laughs> but even Limp Biscuit kind of sound all right. <laughs> well, he, he, he looks like a, he looks like a, like a 70s porn director now. He looks like a Burt yeah, Reynolds yeah. character in fucking um, Boogie Nights. To be honest, it's not a bad look. I'm sure he was like an A&R guy. Yeah, I think he worked for Interscope. Can you imagine that? You're an A&R guy and your boss comes. Who have you signed? Me. <laughs> Someone had to. Yeah. Do you remember writing original material? Did that come early for you? Well, lyrics, yeah, pretty early. It was around the grunge days. Oh God, I'd love to. I would love to read some of them now. I would love to hear some of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't remember them, but I remember. Oh man, it was. It was. They were bad. Can you remember any song titles? Uh, yeah, I can. I'm not going. <laughs> oh, come on. There was a moment where I joined a band as the drummer and we just did rage covers and that was it. That's all we did. I remember the guitarist guy could do all the Tom Morello shit. Oh, wow. Just, he nailed it. And we were, I remember us 
you know, we started playing one of the tracks and we were all looking at each other like, like, fuck, we're going to be like Rage Against the Machine. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was like, we got a guitarist who's like Tom Morello. We're fucking, we're we're off. You're halfway there. Yeah, we're, we're, you know. But yeah, I think we did like two or three rehearsals and then, you know, called it, called it a day. Was that the first band you were in? I think that was, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was the first band. I think I tried to get bands together before that, like at, at school. Mm-hmm. But it was more like we picked a name. Ah, I remember one band I was in and we were called Beige. Beige? <laughs> I think I was into Genesis at the time. <laughs> Fucking hell. And the name Beige just, it was like, yeah. I don't know what it was. It was fucking Yacht Rock. Do you know what I mean? Oh, wow. You know, and it was just sort of like, oh, yeah, beige sounds great. Beige, that's a fucking awesome name, man. It was fucking bad. Hi, we're beige. (laughs) i tell you what, you never forget it. Um, But, yeah, like, I remember we we arranged a rehearsal at my house and they all showed up and I didn't have anything. I didn't have any guitars, any drums. So we're all just sat in the living room. (laughs) It's like, so what are we doing? (laughs) And I was like, well, well, we've got the name. <laughs> now let's listen to some Genesis. <laughs> now let's listen to some Yorok. Let's go. And get inspired and then maybe hum stuff at each other. I don't know, I don't know man. Yeah. I think I was like nine at the time. Really? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember where it was. So uh, you're a nine-year-old Genesis fan? Yeah, well, it was my mum. My mum was a big Genesis right, fan. Right, right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Genesis, by the way. No, 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 it's... It's yeah, it's what it is. Um, she was a big Genesis fan, and uh, is this I, Peter I Gabriel era Genesis or or Big Phil? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, Peter Gabriel Genesis. Yeah, era. are you a fan of uh, Phil Phil era? Oh yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Jesus Christ, there's nobody writing songs like that. So where did it go from Beige? Can you give us a little run through your band history from from Beige to Does It Offend You? Yeah. Really, I mean, it was beige. Was like again, I was always trying to sort of put bands together or whatever. I was in a band with a couple of friends of mine for a. I think we had one rehearsal, and that was it. And then I tried to put a band together when I was, I think I was around like eighteen or something, nineteen, and that just didn't work out. So it was all. I was always trying to do something, put stuff together, and things like that, and it just never really materialized did you always feel like you were gonna just be a songwriter on your own i work better on my own yeah i can work faster on my own but then the flip side of that is that you're left to your own thinking right which can be bad which is most of the time bad it's a constant like yeah i work better on my own i get better material on my own but there's this constant uphill battle that's why I, I try to work as quickly as I can, because then I stay ahead of that, you know, that voice. Yeah. If you start to go slowly or you start to second guess stuff, then that's when it catches up. And next thing you know, you're deleting stuff and you're, you're going, ah, oh, I'm not too sure about this. And the fear kicks in and that's when then compromise starts and then you're pedaling backwards, you know. So did you feel like, because obviously growing up in a studio, being a multi instrument, uh, a multi instrument instrumentalist, I'll edit that out. Yeah, and uh, being a multi instrumentalist, there you go. There's a clean one for me. Having had some bands when you were younger, was it a decision to just sort of be like, right, I'm going to just do my own thing, 
or was it just a natural, like a natural progression? I think it was just a case of you could do more on your own. It was a case of, well, I don't have to get a bunch of people together. I can just kind of do it. So that's really why I think I worked on my own a lot. I think that's just how it's evolved. And so pre Does It Avenger, yeah, was you making EPs? Were you making tracks? Yeah, I was making techno mostly. Yeah, I did a record, uh, I put out a few records here and there. I was doing quite well as a techno artist. What was your name? Uh, <laughs> I was called Calf Dunn. Calf Dunn. Yeah, that was my, uh, <laughs> that was my name. <laughs> yeah, I know, again. How long ago was that? I mean, I was a massive Daft Punk fan at the time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I still am. That's another dance act where it was like, oh shit, dance music can kind of be like this. Yeah. Because at the time, it was all like Chicago House or Detroit Techno. And, and you know, and then there was like the European, like fucking two unlimited stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was just, that's awesome. Not into that. Oh, yeah. No, me neither. Um, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then Daft Punk came along. And I remember hearing da- uh, the funk and just being like, what? Yeah, that was mega. The video was mega as well. Oh, the video was so good. It's just everything about it, the whole vibe. And it was like, wow, this is fucking great. And so I really got into Daft Punk. And I was kind of making this sort of techno. I was trying to make like chin stroke of techno. Right. There's this sort of level of techno where no one listens to it. No one dances to it. But the critics love it. And, uh, And it was working. The critics loved it but no one was buying it. (laughs) (laughs) I was getting like five stars and like tune of the month everywhere, but fucking I was selling none. (laughs) Were you releasing it yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and this was when you had to get shit pressed, you know, put it out. Right. So yeah, I'd have these techno tracks, you know, DJ Mag were bigging up and, but they just weren't selling, you know. So that was that. Undiscovered hero. Were you doing vocals then? No, no, no. It was just pure. I mean, it was like real raw techno stuff. Now it would probably be quite big. I remember hearing a disclosure and thinking, fucking hell, I was doing this. I was doing this fucking uh, 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 five years ago. But yeah, anyway, so, you know, it it was just, it was like that sort of thing. When did you start doing vocals? Was that something that you'd wanted to do or was it a necessity? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It was something. Uh, it was, it's, I mean, it all sort of started with Does It Offend You? Yeah. And that whole era was a real, like we, like me and Dan, we did those first few tracks real quick. You know, um, there was no thought really went into it at all. Again, it was in the moment, no fear. We just sort of did them as a, as a joke almost, you know, as a laugh. I think I was trying to get Dan laid or something. I can't remember <laughs> what it was. Something like that. I think Dan wanted to do a mixtape for this girl that he was trying to impress. And, and he played me all this French stuff that was coming out of Paris, you know, and it was, everyone was on there, you know, it was all the Ed Banger stuff. And, and I was just like, fucking hell, this is great. And I said, well, to write, let's write a couple of this stuff. And that really, you know, that really impressed her. So we wrote like Battle Royale and, I think it was Battle Royale and Rockstars was the first two tracks we did. Wow. And that was in one weekend. I was like, we just knocked them out. And then we had such a good time doing it. It was such a good laugh. Dan said, oh, I should come back next weekend. 
And I think I was in the middle of moving to London or something. I said, well, yeah, you know, come up to London, you know. So like a month later, he came up to London and we wrote um, Weird Science. Wow. So that was the third song you wrote? Yeah. And then I think we put them up online. That's when we started the, the MySpace, I think. I might be getting things out of order. But yeah, they were definitely the first three tracks. There's another song we did called Seven, but it was it was awful. <laughs> so we, we got rid of that. And then Dan put them up online. And that was that. It just, it, it took pretty much instantly. I think we went out, we went out, Justice were playing in uh, in King's Cross and we went to that and like no one was there, you know. <laughs> this was like just maybe a few months before they blew up. The place wasn't packed. But everyone that was there was an A&R. Really? You know? Yeah, we didn't know. We just showed, we were like, we're really into these, these French guys. We're going to go and see these French guys. So we we put these these three tracks on a CD, and uh, we got these little cards printed up and stuff, and we gave them to uh, uh, what's his name Pedro, I think it is the Daft Punk's manager or Justice's wow. manager. I think his name's Pedro. Gave them to him. I remember Dan gave it to him, and he went, uh, "You want me to sign this?" <laughs> I was like, no. In a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe that's what he meant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we gave it to him. I don't think his name is Pedro. I think it's that's a Spanish <laughs> name. <laughs> I think I totally got that wrong. And then we had like loads of them. We had like 20 of these CDs. So we just started giving them to people. And I think as the people were leaving, and again, there wasn't that many people there. There was like, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so people there. It was a small, tiny little place. And they walked out and um, giving them the CD. And then we just thought nothing of it. And then the next day, we were record of the day. No way. Rockstars was record of the day. I remember Dan being like, fucking hell, we're record of the day. That girl must have been pressed now. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what, I didn't know what record of the day was. And he's like, it's like a big A&R thing, like all the record labels check in on it. Like, I was just like, I don't know. But then I remember our plays on MySpace just shot up. They went super high real quick, which I thought like that was the biggest thing ever. And then we got a gig. It was a gig in Brixton, DJ set, 50 quid each, me and Dan, 100 quid for the for the whole thing. And I was just, I remember turning to Lamb and being like, fucking hell, 50 quid, Lamb. <laughs> For, for a DJ set, I was so blown away by this. I'm like, oh my god, this is it! Like, fucking hell, I've made it, you know. <laughs> and uh, we showed up at Brixton and started DJing, and there was no one there apart from around twenty people who were all the A and R people from the Justice gig. No way. Yeah, it was all A and R's. I remember sort of recognizing there was a girl I recognized. I was like, she was at the Justice gig. Um, but she was an AR. And then we did that. And then it all kicked off after that. The emails just went crazy. That we were on Kiss FM the next day, I think, doing like a DJ set or something. And I remember on the way, Dan's phone started ringing and it just didn't stop. And he was like, How did you get this number? Really? Yeah. And he put the phone down. He was like, That's Mercury Records. They want to meet tomorrow. And there's literally his phone ring again. He was like, hello, that was Polygram. They want to meet tomorrow. And I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> I remember the first meeting we had was with Virgin. And I was so convinced that they got it wrong, that we were going to walk in and they were going to be like, oh, we love your name. You know, doesn't it 
doesn't it offending someone? And I'll be like, <laughs> and I'll be like no, where does it offend you? Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Wrong band, wrong people. I was so convinced that that was going to, I was like, they've got us confused. Imposter syndrome again. Imposter syndrome, yeah. yeah. And then I, and then I remember he went, um, Ben, the A&R guy at Virgin, you know, he was like, oh, I love the sound and blah, blah, blah. And he went, I, you know, this one I fucking love. And he pressed play and it's weird science started playing. And that's when it, the penny really dropped. He was like, oh, fuck, they actually mean us. Shit. Oh, no, I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you think you were fucked? Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't that. It was. It's like shit's getting real. Shit's getting real. You know, it was like, oh fuck, you know. And I guess you weren't expecting it, right? You were just making tunes to for, In for no love. No way were we expecting it. No, it was sheer, sheer. We're just having a laugh. Let's just have a laugh. Yeah. You know? The fucking name does it offend you? Yet? No one calls their band on purpose. Does it offend you? Yet? <laughs> Is it true that you got that from the office? Yeah, we yeah. had to fill out the, I think it was Dan setting up the Facebook. I can't, I, I can't exactly remember how it went, but it was, I think it was Dan was setting up the Facebook, uh, the MySpace, sorry. And uh, it got to band name and he was like, band name? And I'm like, I don't know, Dan and James? <laughs> <laughs> Beige? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Beige. <laughs> But how could we get with that close? We were that close because Dan would have typed it in, you know. Because again, it was, it was so you could send it to your mates, you know. And, yeah. And literally, it was like, oh, whatever's on TV. And, and just at that point, David Brent said, Does it offend you? Yeah, am I drinking? Dan just started typing until you can, till he used up all the characters. Yeah. Does it offend you? Yeah. That's as far as he got. Well, mate, it's a fucking amazing band name, man. It's so good. I tell you what, I did when Dan wrote it in, and he went, "Does it offend you?" Yeah, no, that's it. That's all we can get in. And I went, "Does it offend you?" Yeah, and I immediately did it in Zane Lowe's voice, and I was <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, no, that sounds all right." And I, <laughs> I, 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 I compared it to if Zane Lowe had said it, and I was like, "Yeah, no, that kind of sounds like something he'd say." Like, like that. <laughs> that was it. Well, that's great because that's the that's the dreamer, isn't it? That's like can I can I can I hear it on the radio? Yeah, the first time I heard him play a Does It Offend You Yes song, he said it exactly the way <laughs> I thought he would say it. So it's all goes. What will you shut the fuck up? Thank you. Well, go. What were your what were your early gigs like? Uh. Again, I think imposter syndrome had a lot. I, rem- I remember our first ever gig was in Liverpool in this tiny, tiny little club. Uh, I mean, it wasn't even a club. It was like a, like a, you know, it's the size of a living room. You know, it was this tiny, tiny little thing. And I couldn't face the audience. I remember that. Jim Morrison style. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And I remember Dan being like, turn around. It's <laughs> <laughs> good advice. The stage was so... The stage was so small that you could you couldn't really move, so I just sort of faced um, Rob, the drummer, and Dan because we'd been rehearsing for like you know three or four months, and we'd all been in a circle. So I was so used to that, and then suddenly to be like, okay, you gotta now turn around and face the audience, which there wasn't. There was like fifteen people there, but I remember they knew some of the songs, and I, and that kind of blew me away. I was like, fuck, people. They they know some of the songs. 
and it was you know it was a good show you know we had a good time or whatever but very weird you know weird in what way they, that was really my first experience on stage you know i'd done dj sets i'd done some live techno sets but that was the first time where it was like i oh, know now you're stood on a stage and you're facing an audience well or not <laughs> and you're sort of you're you're on display you know because usually djs they're off in a fucking corner somewhere you know or, yeah yeah you know a live techno set you're you're high and loaded gear in a corner but this was like your center of attention yeah and so it was really odd and just uneasy i mean i never liked the whole front guy thing so were you writing you were writing the lyrics yeah 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 i mean i had help you know i think rob chipped in with a heavy heart uh, i think we pretty much wrote that one together some lyrics i did it completely on my own but dawn of the dead was i pretty much did epilogue song i pretty much did had you written lyrics pre does it offend you yeah yeah i had but but yeah it was it was again it was you know when i was in my grunge days can you remember any of them no i know somebody who does i know i know somebody who actually has a lyric sheet from back then oh really a song that i wrote and she's got it she reminds me of these lyrics and while she's while she's reminding me of these lyrics she's laughing in my face <laughs> <laughs> can you remember any titles uh yeah i can remember yeah i can yeah you're not gonna tell them why <laughs> <laughs> there was one there was one called slap my face <laughs> yeah that's that's what i'm saying and that was a my, that was a good title so, give us a bad title then that was one of the good ones so uh yeah it was all very um it was all very uh shit but you know um but back then it was a real it was a real like every line had to be i was overly scared of writing a bad line so you end up not writing a line at all right you know what i'm saying yeah i do know what you're saying do you remember like the pivotal moment where you realized that you were a musician, a professional musician, and you were doing it and you were successful. You were earning money, you're earning respect from your peers, You and you, you're on stage and you're doing it. Do you ever, like, or not necessarily on stage, maybe in a studio and think, I'm here. I'm here. Not really. No? Do you think that's the imposter syndrome kicking in again? Maybe, yeah. I've never had that. It's like, I, again, it was always like, wet, like, like how long? How long do I think I could get? There's a thing I didn't want to get away with it. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be good, be able to consider myself a musician or whatever, but I didn't allow myself to do that. Um, so it was always like, how long can I get away with this? Until I think there was a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy as well going on. Yeah, it was always how long can I get away with this? And I mean, this is the thing: the writing side, I've never had a problem with. Mm-hmm. You know, I can write all day. That's fine. I've never had writer's block. The problem was with the production. That was the problem for me, was I couldn't get the records to sound how I wanted them to sound. So that was always the struggle. I can write four, five, six, seven, eight songs in a day. That's not a problem. But then it's it's the, okay, let's let's make this sound good, how I want it to sound. And that's where the problem always lies. Yeah. You know? That's where the imposter dream always kicked in. And it was like, no, no, you're not good enough to do that. 
Um, so that's really what used to screw me up. Meeting my heroes and getting to work with them when I got to work with Liam, um, that was a, a real moment of like, fuck, I'm on that level. Or, you know, I'm not on Liam's level, but it's like I'm good enough for Liam to be like, hey, do you want to do a song together? Is this when you worked with Liam in... Uh, Prodigy Liam. What, what, what album was it you worked on? It was... Uh, Invaders but Stylist, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was kind of like, it was like, oh, shit, I'm emailing with Liam Howlett. That was a big moment. Production, right? He's one of my heroes. He's the it's fucking like, king. It's like, fuck, you know, suddenly you're working with... It's like if Daft Punk called me up or, you know, Rage Against the Machine or something. It was like... Mm. So that was a really big, big moment. And being able to tell Lam as well, because she knew how much I admired the band and admired his production and stuff. And, you know, to be able to tell her, like, he's hit me up. We're going you know, to work on something together. You know, that was a real moment. Yeah. Um, what did your dad say? Fuck, I can't remember. I, I dread to think. It was probably, <laughs> it was probably an insult. <laughs> like, you know, like, well, you're going to embarrass yourself, aren't you? You're, you know, he, I can't remember what it was, but in something funny, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, I, I think he was very proud. You know? Of course, of course. I remember he came when we did the show in uh, Milton Keynes. Mm. He came to that. Yeah, that was a good moment. Look at this. It's called a sampler. Look, look, you do this. Yeah, yeah, you hear that? Every chorus, bang, bit of impact. And then we did it. Oh, hang on. No, sorry. I don't know how to turn this off yet. Is it? It's one and like that. Right. What do you reckon? Gives a bit of an edge. So, moving forward, what you got going on at the moment? Uh, well, a new Does It Fenny record. It's going good. Um, I just got tired. I got tired with writing with writing for other people, and just how the business has sort of become. Like I was saying earlier on, you know, it's it's A and R guys are now the are, are the ones that write, you know, create the thing, mm-hmm. and it's all very safe and. Well, if it's not very safe, it's very TikTok will love it. When people started saying that. Is that a thing? TikTok will love it? Yeah, oh, it's very TikTok. Oh, mate. You just want to throw up in your mouth. You know? <laughs> it's painful. Fucking people start calling the music content now. You know? It's just you know. can't get my head. They're like, oh, lovely content. So fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, so it just, I just, I was losing the will to live pretty fast. Yeah. And, yeah, it was a it was a combination of stuff that sort of happened all around the same time. Some of it was quite personal, and then somebody from my publishing hit me up and said, "Oh, hey, look, I got a friend. He's making a movie, and it's set in two thousand and eight. And they want the type of stuff that you guys used to do. Can you knock up a couple of ideas?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, man. Like, fine." So I started knocking up some ideas. And here's the thing: with does it offend you? Yeah. Like, we've had people say to us over the years, oh, do another Does It Fin You album. And I've always been like, I have no idea what that record sounds like. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't know what I don't know what it is. I wouldn't even know where to start. And I think I tried a couple of times to sort of try to start a record, but I just, the, the focus wasn't there. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what it is. Right. So then I started making these tracks and it was fun i was having a great time doing them and i did like five or six and they were just coming out real quick real real quick and then i started thinking hold on a minute uh, and like the idea started like this is a does it venue record it kind of sounds like one it's got the attitude of it 
it's slightly different, but there's moments where it's just like 2008. Does it offend you? And then it's more modern or different or, do you know what I mean? It's just, it felt like this is becoming a does it offend you record. Right. But I didn't want to say it out loud. You know what I mean? I was just yeah. sort of like, I'm just going to carry on writing for this movie. And I wrote, I think I wrote about 48 tr- tunes. Wow. In two weeks. In two wow. weeks. Yeah. I just went full hog. Now these aren't fleshed out ideas. Yeah. These are just raw, quick sort of things. But funny enough, that was what made Does It Finny great. It was always very, very raw and not polished and not thought about particularly. You know, it was kind of just done on the fly. Yeah. So, yeah, I did 40-odd tracks. I knew that most of them would be shit, and I was right. (laughs) There was 15 in there that weren't. Yeah. And it was like, okay, this is an album. You know, this is a Does It Fend You album. And that's when I spoke to Dan and I said, look, there's a record. And he came down and listened to everything. And he was just like, there's too much information here. Yeah. you got two albums. So cut it in half, you know? Um, so that's pretty much what we decided to do. Do you think, like, was that like a release for you? And do you think that that happened so easily because... You were, there was no pressure there. You were doing something like almost a favour for a friend in the vein of yourself. And as a result, there's no pressure and you're like just churning them out. Yeah, I mean, I mean again, uh, writing has never been a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, so the writing's, the writing's never been the problem. It was, it was always the production side of things where things would slow down. But, uh, you know, over the years I've got better at it. Like it, when it was like, okay, this is an album. I picked a word because this was the other thing as well. I realized what Does It Fend You was, which is Does It Fend You is a Saturday night band. The number one word that I kept all the way through this album was fun. Yeah, that's it. It's just fun. We're not deep, it's not meant to be taken seriously. It's not meant to, you're not meant to ponder it. You know, it's not that. It's your, it's, it's, you're going out. Yeah. You know? It's going out music. It's, it's get, ex- you know, let's get excited. Let's, uh, so that's, that's what it is. And that's what it's always been. And it just took a while to, to sort of figure out what it was, you know. Right, well, I've got three more questions for you. Hang on. If you were a boxer or a UFC fighter or a wrestler, what would your intro music be? Uh, well, it would have to be Smack My Bitch Up. Nice. Good shout. When I was a kid, I was really into WWF, right? And, like, that was it. I was going to be a WWF wrestler, right? But I had this whole character and I had my special move. I was going to be called the Rhino. There is a Rhino. You know that from ECW. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I went off. I, I, you know, after the age of 12, I think I stopped watching. Yeah, yeah. Same, same. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, wrestling gods. I didn't mean that. (laughs) But yeah, no, um. So I was I was ahead of the curb. I was I was you were before before Rhino. You were Rhino. <laughs> <laughs> I made the weirdest noise then. <laughs> Sound like I swallowed a dog whistle. <laughs> all right. What do you think is the greatest TV show theme tune of all time? Intro or outro? 
The one I most like or the one that... Whatever comes to mind. I think the A-team's pretty fucking good. That is pretty fucking good. Uh, I, oh, do you know what? Knight Rider, uh, fucking um, Street Hawk, uh, the Running Man music. Nice. Those sort of 80s car slash motorbike slash helicopters. I mean, there's a whole genre of music now basically based around that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, they just, they got it, man. There was just something about that music in that era that was great. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, man. Even like the cartoons, like one of mine is yeah, um, oh, the yeah, raccoons, yeah. The, the run with us, Thundercats, yeah. Thundercats, uh, all those. Awesome. Like really good. Um, yeah, they were just on it, man. It was all the cocaine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, man, I would love to have gone back into that time and just been in a studio and been like, all right, we've got this new one now, you know, um, Captain Airwave or something like that. And just yeah. being all like, dum, 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 dum. <laughs> well, it's just going like, oh, he's running at me real fast. <laughs> Captain Airwave. <laughs> uh, Boogie Nights, where he does. Uh, Oh, you got the touch. Touch, which is the Transformers movie. Transformers, yeah, mate, so good. So good, so right? You good. got the touch. That's fucking. <laughs> That's so that good. That film's so good. good. All right, mate. Last question: What song do you want played at your funeral? Oh, fucking! I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's a bit. Of, it's a bit of a depressing one to end on, it. <laughs> Well, I was hoping it would be funny because I would have some Superman by Black Lace and I'd want everyone to do the dance. Yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> okay, maybe I'll scrap that question. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, actually, I do. I do. Aaron Copland, and it would be something spring. Hold on. <laughs> how, do you, how would you say it? Apple... Apple a chain. I mean, I'm the worst person to ask. I'm fucking dyslexic as fuck. Yeah, so am I. So I'm, I'm, that's why I'm like... I mean, I know... Blind what... in the blind ear. Aaron Copland. What's he called? Aaron Aaron Copland. Right, he's come up. Right, got him. Appalachian... Ap- Appala- Ap- Appala- Appalachian Spring? <gasps> Appalachian... Appala- oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Appalachian. Appalachian. App- Appalachian, Appalachian Spring. I'll open the show with this bit. <laughs> Do you want me to ask you again? And the final question. <laughs> no, no, it's right. So uh, it would be it would be Aaron Aaron Copland. Aaron Copland. <laughs> <sighs> I've forgotten how to say it. Stuart Copeland, alopecia summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's a lovely piece of music, but it's half an hour long. So. <laughs> All right. I want them to be like, like, you know, like, oh, get up to go. Oh, no, it's okay. It's still going. All right. And after <laughs> a minute, they get the joke. So that it's like, oh, yeah, I'm fucking, you know. Like, you, got, you, have to, you have to stay to the end. Like, you got to wait till the song ends. Like, maybe a Dylan song that's like, you know, 17 verses or a hymn. Yeah. It doesn't. A rush song. Yeah, it's just a song to fuck with people. All right. One last thing. What advice would you give to your a young James Russian? Uh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Look at something else that you're interested in. 
It's a mugs game. What else are you doing? <laughs> okay, do that. Don't be an accountant. This is shit. Yeah, don't don't get involved. Walk away. Walk away. That's what. That's really what I'm saying. <laughs> I think, I think that's probably fucking really good advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's why I'd say to my my younger self. That's sound advice. <laughs> Thank you so much for fucking doing this, man. It's amazing. I hope it comes. I hope it comes out right. I don't sound like a complete twat. Oh no, you and sound like a complete well. twat. But like, <laughs> I I always knew that was going to be the case. You know, <laughs> definitely went shit. It definitely went shit. Which is what I wanted. Everyone's doing good podcasts. What's that all about? I want to do a shit one. <laughs> yeah, you didn't go on to the whole fucking us getting naked running around a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> That's for part two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dudes. We're nice one, yeah? Mate, lots of love, man. That's fucking amazing. Bye, dudes. Thank you. Bye. Man, what an amazing guest for a first ever episode. How lucky am I? I would say how lucky are you, but I don't know how you felt about it, so I might go online later and listen to everyone tell me that I'm a total piece of shit. You know, these things happen. But anyway, I want to say a massive thank you to James for being an amazing first guest. The pilot episode, if you will. He was fucking awesome. He's such a great guy. He's got the most sinister laugh I've ever heard in my life. And he is one of the best songwriters and producers out there, without a doubt. Throughout that episode, you would have heard some snippets of some of the latest tracks that Does It Offend You have released. We're expecting a new album soon, and I, for one, can't fucking wait. But in the meantime, get yourself over to Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your music and check out Does It Offend You Years back catalogue. It's the shit. So thank you again, James, for being such an amazing guest and sharing your incredible journey with us. And also, from the bottom of my heart, I want to say a massive, massive thank you to everyone that's listened to this episode. You have no idea how much I appreciate it and how much I love you. If you'd like to get in touch and share some of your band stories with us, feel free to drop us a note at tbbtbbpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on the show, whether you love us, you hate us, you hate me, that's fine. Or whether you just think, I don't know, Deep Purple are cool. I don't know, whatever. Just get in touch. I have no friends. Feel free to like and subscribe. I have no idea what that achieves. If you do have any negative comments to say about the show, if you leave us a five-star review, I'll happily read them out. You know, you scratch my back, I read out your insults. Works for both of us, I think. Anyway, this has been the Band Before the Band Before podcast. I've been Chaz Langston. You've been you. Thank you so much for listening. Love ya.